Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I am uh, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open. As we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, because last week we ended in verse 8, and 9 is, uh, is next, and that's what we do here. So some of you know that I have uh, a, a particular fondness for, uh, for Japan, given that my dad was adopted from there. Now, I don't speak Japanese. Uh, I've never lived there. I've, I've had the pleasure of, of getting to, to travel over there a couple of times. And I love certain aspects of, uh, of Japanese culture. For instance, I, uh, I love karaoke. I'm not good at it, but, uh, but I really love it. If, uh, if there was a profession that was a professional karaoke person and I was good at it, then that would probably be what I would do. I'd forsake the ministry in a heartbeat to do that. And, uh, and so uh, I love karaoke. In fact, when I was uh, over there last time in 2012 with a buddy who's now a uh, full-time missionary church planner in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, he and I would just hang out in front of karaoke bars and as strangers walked by, we would uh, ask them in his broken Japanese if they wanted to come in and do karaoke with us. And nobody ever said yes, as you can imagine. They just stared at us. Uh, you're not, apparently also not supposed to just ask random strangers in Japan what they're doing uh, and if, you, if you, they want to uh, come in and hang out with you. So, uh, but I love karaoke. I also love Japanese food, uh, things like ramen, uh, not like ramen noodles that you get in the store, but uh, actual ramen, uh, gyoza, which are kind of like uh, dumplings. Uh, I love Kobe beef. I love the whole experience, the slurping of the noodles and chopsticks and take your shoes off and all of those kind of things. And I especially love sushi. Now, before you ask me for recommendations in the area, I just am a sushi snob. So I like like really, really nice sushi, like save up in order to buy it. And so some of you may know today's actually Zach Lee's birthday. And we have a tradition that on each other's birthdays and on uh, for Christmas, we will give each other gift cards to the exact same sushi restaurant. And then once a year, we'll double date there because we can't actually afford it any other time of the year. And so it's a place called Nobu, if you're looking for a, a gift card for, for one of us. But Nobu in Dallas is our favorite place. Uh, other Japanese things that I love, I love bullet trains, I love bonsai trees, I love samurai swords and cherry blossoms and toilets in Japan, which will automatically raise or lower so you never have to touch it. I love Mr. Miyagi, I love all of these kinds of things. There's also parts about Japanese culture, though, that I don't love. For instance, a, uh, a Japanese person will never tell you if, uh, if they don't know directions to some place. Apparently, that's considered rude. It's considered rude for them to say, I don't know how to help you. So if you walk up to a stranger on the street, again, which is something that's also considered rude, and you ask them where, I don't know, Starbucks is, uh, they'll give you directions, even if they have no idea what you're talking about at all. They'll just point you in a direction because it's kind of uncouth for them uh, to not answer. So they'll just make something up. So that's really fun. I've spent lots of time just walking around Tokyo, absolutely convinced that I'm going in the right direction, but I'm actually lost because some guy just seems so confident in the directions he gives. So there's things that I love about the culture. There's things that I don't love about the culture, but then there's also other things I just don't understand. Uh, you know, probably because I'm a little bit older, I'm in my, uh, my 40s now, and I'm American, I just don't understand some of these things. For instance, all the various fashion subcultures uh, in Japan, I don't really understand, like the, the, the cosplay and the dressing up like animals or dressing up like a baby doll. For instance, the last time I was there, I was in a park, and I saw this older gentleman, he was maybe about 55 or so, uh, I saw this gentleman, he's sitting on a park bench, 
and he's pushing a stroller. So far, so good. That doesn't seem all that strange. That's not weird. But what was weird was this 55-year-old man or whatever he was, uh, he was dressed up like a kid. And in that stroller were two baby dolls, but no actual baby. And he was just pushing them around the city. And I remember staring at him for what seemed like too long. And, uh, and then suddenly this sense of sadness kind of washed over me as I began to wonder, who is this guy? What's he like? What's his story? What's going on? What causes this middle-aged man to dress up like a child in public and to push these baby dolls around in a stroller like they're real babies? When my boy, who is uh, almost two, when he walks around in the house with nothing but a diaper on, that's kind of cute, but how strange would it be if I were to walk on stage wearing a diaper or if I were to walk on a stage with a pacifier holding my blankie or something like that? There's something disturbing about that image. There's something disturbing about the image of a grown adult with a pacifier. Well, likewise, there's something profoundly upsetting about a Christian who is living in this perpetual, ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin, living as if he or she is still defined by that relationship to sin. And that awkwardness, that unsettlingness, if that were a word, that tension, that impropriety is what our passage is about this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in together. I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you an undivided mind and heart to consider and to uh, heed his word. And then next week, will you, uh, and then also, will you pray for, uh, for those around you? And then lastly, will you pray for me? So Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather together and to hear your word and to hear, heed your word and to, to have it uh, impress upon us. We're grateful for the gift of your spirit and for the gift of your son. So uh, we pray that you would help us this morning. You're good and you do good. And so I pray that you'd help us to see that as we consider your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So last week we talked about lawsuits, right? And Zach said that we can occasionally sue one another. The Bible doesn't necessarily preclude or, or prohibit any and all lawsuits. Uh, so that's really good news for some of us, right? We're just uh, really sue happy. But, but we saw that in the majority of cases that we should have this posture uh, of our hearts that we should overlook an offense or, or at least that we should deal with it within the context and the con- confines uh, of the church, of the people of God. And so if you, if you weren't here for that, you need to listen to it. Uh, by the way, we don't do these sort of one-off e- episodic uh, sermons here at Parkway. Each sermon is building upon each other. They're all interrelated. They all kind of overlap. And in other words, if you want to understand today's sermon, you have to go back and you need to understand last week's sermon and the week before that and so forth. So last week's passage ended with these two verses, verses seven through eight, which says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
So we read that and then we get to this week's passage, our passage today in verse nine reads, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you might be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with what we read previously? That seems a little bit out of place. It seems like a bit of a non sequitur. So what is the link between verse eight and verse nine? How does verse nine flow out of the context of the previous section? And, to, and in order to answer that, let me tell you a story. It's a story that you're probably familiar with because it's a story that Jesus actually tells. It's a parable, uh, in fact. We call it the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I'll tell it to you. Here it goes, all right? There once was a man, let's call him Ted, just for the sake of uh, argument, and, and Ted owes this king this tremendous debt adjusted for inflation. He owes hundreds of billions of Bitcoin, all right? If Ted lived 100 years, he could never possibly repay that debt. So what does Ted do? Well, Ted goes to the king and he begs for mercy. He begs for mercy and surprisingly, the king just forgives the debt. He says, you don't have to pay me a cent, not a penny. And that's crazy, but that's not even the craziest part of the story because then... Ted goes out, and what does he do? Well, he finds some other guy who owes him like five dollars, and Ted slaps him around a bit. Ted actually chokes him out over five measly dollars, which tells us that this story doesn't take place in Texas, right? Because that guy would have been armed, and he would have shot Ted. (laughs) That's not the moral of the story, all right? If only... Ted had really grasped the grace that was shown to him by this king, then surely he would be willing to, uh, to forgive and to forego this trivial debt that he's owed. Now relate that to the context of the previous section on lawsuits. If you are inheriting the kingdom, which is what our passage today says, why are you so obsessed with trivial lawsuits like in last week's? If you knew that you were set to inherit $1 billion tomorrow, would you argue over a few pennies today? That's Paul's point. To fight over a few coins today means that you've lost sight of the bigger picture. Likewise, to chase some fleeting joy in sexual morality or whatever it might be as in the context. As C.S. Lewis wrote, this is a familiar passage, you've probably uh, heard it before. C.S. Lewis writes this, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So that's the context. Now, What does our passage today say? Well, Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. So in order to really understand this, we need to answer the question, who are the unrighteous and what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? First, who are the unrighteous? Well, in a sense, we're all unrighteous. As Romans 3 would say, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's a really important theological point for us to grasp. We believe in the fundamental depravity of mankind That's absolutely true, but that's not the way that Paul is using the term unrighteous here. Here in this context, he doesn't mean all people without exception. In fact, he's already given us a clue as to how to interpret this this, uh, particular word in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 6, 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous 
instead of the saints. You see the same word there. So you see there's these two types of people that are being contrasted in this chapter. On one hand are the unrighteous, and on the other hand are the saints. Not in the Roman Catholic sense, but in the New Testament sense in which all of God's people are saints. All of God's people are sanctified. All right, so the unrighteous here in 1 Corinthians chapter six means those who are not justified, those who are not counted as righteous in Christ. In other words, unbelievers or the lost. Well, what about them? Paul says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? Well, in order to answer that, you need to know what the kingdom of God is. If I were to ask you this question, what does Jesus talk about more than anything else? What would you say? Well, it kind of depends on who you are. Some would say he talks about love more than anything else. If you're a pacifist, you would say he talks about peace more than anything else. If you're a moralist, you would say he talks about sin more than anything else. If you're a Texan, you would say he talks about the dangers of socialism or how awful California is or something like that. But in reality, what Jesus talks about more than anything else by far is the kingdom. Think about how common this is. You're familiar with this, whether you recognize it, whether you've connected these dots or not. When I start listing these out, it will suddenly click for you. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. The kingdom is like a man sowing seed in a field. The kingdom is like leaven. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. And on and on and on you could go because this is by far the most common thing that Jesus talks about. Jesus talks about the kingdom all of the time. Why does he talk about the kingdom all the time? Because the kingdom is the gospel. You ever do word associations? I give you a word, you shout out the first word that comes into your mind. All right, let's practice that, assuming that the first word that comes to your mind is actually appropriate to shout out in church. All right, ready? Peanut butter. Great. Jelly, allergy, whatever it is, right? Bacon. Eggs, yummy, grace, pig, whatever it is, all right? Tim Hollis. Beard, all right? Beard, music, glasses, that's all. That's all Tim is right there. You've got the whole of Tim. It's a holistic Hollis, that's what we call him. All right, one more, gospel. Great, Jesus, life, salvation, good news. Some of you actually said it, which is kingdom. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to train your mind to think about the word kingdom when you think of the word gospel. There should be a word association between those two words in your mind. Every time I say gospel, you should think kingdom. In fact, let's try it. I'm gonna say gospel, and I want you to say kingdom. Gospel, kingdom. gospel. Every time I say kingdom, you should think gospel, kingdom. I said think that time, all right? Okay. Why? Why is there this uh, association between the two? Because the Bible says so. Look at Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Mark 1, 14 through 15, now after John was, arrest, or John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, quote, the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled, and quote, the kingdom of God 
is at hand. Repent and believe in, quote, the gospel. So later today, we're having a, a membership class, and it's always funny that one of the sections in the membership class is we, we spend some time expounding upon what we mean by the kingdom, and so we'll spend 30 minutes talking specifically about how the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. And then as a later step in the process, we'll ask those who have gone through the membership process to write out their testimony and their understanding of the gospel if they actually want to join the church. But what's interesting is that hardly ever, uh, hardly anyone ever actually mentions the kingdom when they talk about the gospel. Maybe this class will be different. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the gospel. So why is the gospel called the kingdom? What is the relationship there? Why is the gospel the good news of the kingdom? In order to understand that, you need to back up for a second all the way back to the beginning of your Bible. If you were to open to the very beginning of your Bible, not the table of contents or whatever it might be, but to the very beginning of the beginning of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis, you read about the creation of the world. And that account of the creation of the world is actually full of kingdom imagery within the context of the ancient Near East. We read this within our context. We're, we're Americans, right? We, we've kind of thrown off the, the idea of monarchy and royalty. We're not under anybody. But if you're reading this in the context of the ancient Near East, you're going to see all of these connections, all of these allusions, not like a magic trick, but allusions with an A, all of these allusions to kingdom uh, imagery. For example... One of the hobbies of ancient kings was gardening. So kings would have these elaborate gardens built, and they're built as a reflection of their sovereignty, of their glory. So think of the hanging uh, gardens of Babylon, one of the, uh, the wonders of the ancient world, for instance. And those gardens are intended to say, look at me. Look how I can tame the trees. Look at how I can tame the bushes. Look how I can cultivate these shrubs into these topiaries. Look how I can manipulate the water of the river to irrigate the fields. Look at how I can bend creation to do my own will. Look how I can bring order out of chaos. And then after forming a garden, uh, an ancient king would often take, uh, he would put his signature on that garden by placing a statue or an image of himself in the midst of that garden so that whenever anyone would kind of wander through it, they'd pass through They'd be awed by all the glory that they see around them. And they would ask and they would think, what king could possibly bring such order to such chaos? And then they would see the image and they would say, ah, King Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or whomever. With that in mind, with that context in mind, think back to Genesis. God orders the chaos. God forms a garden, and in the midst of that garden, he places man, created as the, quote, image of God, so that when you would see a fellow human, you would be reminded that Yahweh rules here. And then he tells man to do king stuff. He tells him to exercise dominion over creation. But then in chapter three, an enemy slithers into the kingdom. And rather than man exercising dominion over creation, creation sub, uh, subjugates man. Man submits to the lies of the serpent. And what happens? Well, the kingdom is not only turned upside down, but also divided in a sense. Creation is fractured in the fall. 
And as a result, through this crack in creation, there is this entrance into this good world that God has created, created of sin, of sickness, of demonic oppression, even death. Now with that imagery in mind, jump all the way forward to Jesus who comes on the scene and proclaims the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And what does Jesus do? He comes on the scene and he heals sickness. He forgives sin. He casts out demon. He raises from the dead and even defeats death. In other words, take all of the enemies of the kingdom Take all of the enemies of God's rule and reign and Christ shows his authority over them. He is the king who has conquered all his enemies. You see, the works of Christ, whenever you read the gospels, whenever you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those aren't just neat magic tricks that, you know, like David Blaine doing tricks at a party or something like that. What Jesus is doing there is he is doing these intentional works that manifest the inauguration of the kingdom of God. So what's the kingdom? Well, here's a really short and simple way to think of it. The kingdom is the rule and reign of God that fixes everything broken by sin. You see, in Satan's kingdom, or the kingdom of this world, everything is broken. Absolutely everything is broken. There is not one ounce of creation that has not been affected by the fall. So in Satan's kingdom, everything is broken, but in God's kingdom, everything is being fixed. Or in language you already know, if I say the phrase, your kingdom come, what's the next phrase that comes into your mind? Your will be done, right? That's it. That's the kingdom. When God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus has inaugurated that and it will one day be consummated. Or as theologians say, the kingdom is already, but also not yet. So yes, the gospel is about how you and I are forgiven But that's a very myopic, that's a very short-sighted, that's a very insular view of the gospel because the gospel is actually much more than that. It's not just about how you have been reconciled to God, it's about how all of creation is being reconciled to God. It's about how all of the enemies of the kingdom have been conquered and how God's rule and reign will result in eternal peace and love and joy for all who are in the kingdom. So when Paul writes about inheriting The kingdom here in 1 Corinthians, that's what he means. The realm in which God's reign and rule is finally realized. So it's a huge deal if you don't inherit that reality. If the righteous don't inherit the kingdom, they don't inherit the gospel. They're not God's people in God's place and enjoying God's power and pleasure. By the way, I won't spend too much time on this, but there is a popular teaching which is called free grace theology, that unfortunately distinguishes between the phrase entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. It was actually popularized by some professors at my alma mater, DTS, though it's not that pervasive uh, there today, thankfully. And according to this view called free grace theology, there is a difference between entering the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. All believers enter the kingdom, but not all inherit it. So this passage isn't about eternal life, it's just about eternal rewards. They would say, if you never repent, if your life never changes at all, you still go to heaven. You just won't have your eternal joy supersized, right? But when Paul talks about inheriting the kingdom, he isn't just talking about some reward in addition to eternal life, he's talking about eternal life himself. This passage isn't saying 
that the unrighteous simply get a smaller mansion in heaven. It's saying they're shut out of heaven or the new earth to be more precise. Here's why I've spent so much time on this kingdom sort of idea because unless you realize what's actually at stake here in this passage, this won't have its intended effect. It won't resonate with you. A couple of weeks ago, I used the analogy of the difference between having a frog in your house and having a cobra in your house. Your response to each of those two scenarios is probably very starkly different because the consequences of each of those are so vastly different. Well, likewise, if you think this verse is saying if your life isn't changed by the gospel, you'll miss out on some rewards, you'll still get to heaven though. It dramatically changes the way you understand the gravity of the text. Next verse. 1 Corinthians 6, the latter half of uh, verse 9 through 10, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you see Paul is kind of repeating himself here. This verse is just saying uh, the same thing as the previous, the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom, but then he expounds a bit on what he means by unrighteous by giving some examples. And this is really helpful because as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, the Corinthians were being deceived. They had this distorted view of grace. They had this distorted view of sin. It said that it didn't really matter what they did. It didn't matter what they did with their bodies. We'll see that uh, in uh, next week in particular, but Paul says it does matter. He says, don't be deceived into thinking that the gospel merely offers forgiveness with no transformation. And then he provides this list of sins. We ran into a similar list a couple of weeks back in chapter five, and we said a few things about them back then. First, that these lists are called catalogs of vices, and they're really common uh, throughout the Bible. That's the first thing. They're called catalogs of vices. They're really common throughout the Bible. Second, that no two lists are exactly the same. So Paul uses these in a number of places. Peter uses these and none of them are the exact same. Third, that these lists aren't exhaustive. For instance, notice that there's things you might expect this passage to say that it doesn't actually say. It doesn't list out the proud or the murderers or sluggards or something like that. So don't look at this list as if it's comprehensive. We might imagine him adding an et cetera, if they would have had that in Greek, an et cetera, or a quote, and so forth to the end. In fact, Galatians 5 explicitly says just that sort of idea, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and quote, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's the same phrase again. So the list here in 1 Corinthians 6 isn't intended to be exhaustive. And since this is just a representational list, I'm not gonna spend time on each and every sin that he mentions. As we saw in chapter five, he probably strategically chose which sins that were particularly relevant to Corinthian culture. So I'm not gonna unpack uh, each word, but I do wanna mention a few things uh, about how the list is ordered. But the first thing I want to say is, uh, although we haven't gotten there yet, I want to encourage you that there is hope that is coming. Don't read this and think, well, I guess I'm just damned. I'm guilty of adultery. I I sometimes steal. I'm greedy. I guess I'm just condemned. We'll see, in fact, that's the exact opposite 
of Paul's meaning here. We'll, we'll see that in verse 11. So stay with me if you're feeling that tension already. Second, I want you to notice there seem to be these three types, these three categories of sins that he lists. There's general immorality, things like idolatry and drunkenness and greed. And then there's uh, what you might call social immorality. That's immorality between uh, others, stealing, reviling, swindling. And then there's forms of sexual morality, like adultery and homosexuality. Now, speaking of homosexuality, I want you to do something. I want you to count there in your ESV or whatever translation of Scripture that you're using. How many different sins does Paul mention? Go ahead and count. Shout it out when you know. We've got some 10 and we've got some 9. If you read it in English, if you're just reading the ESV, you'd actually say 9. But in Greek, it's actually 10. Someone's reading from Greek, right? The reason for this is because the English phrase, men who practice homosexuality here in the ESV, is actually two different Greek terms, all right? Arsenikoites and malakos. Now, not to be too graphic, but those two uh, Greek terms represent both the active and also the passive parties in a homosexual uh, relationship or homosexual encounter or, or sexual act. And one of those words could also overlap with what we would uh, think of as transgenderism today. And the reason I want to highlight these particular sins is not because they're unforgivable, Again, the passage is actually saying the exact opposite, as we'll see. The whole point is that you have been forgiven of these sins. But the reason I want, I want to mention this is because sexuality is at the forefront of the culture war today. Even churches are capitulating on this issue. Even in churches, you might hear things like, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, with the implication being, so we shouldn't either. We should just shut our mouths because Jesus didn't talk about it, which is honestly, it's irrelevant at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if Jesus talked about it. It doesn't matter if Jesus said it or Paul wrote it. All scripture is true and all truth is God's truth. So it's irrelevant, but it's also false. It's fake news. Every time Jesus talked about things like sexual morality, every time Jesus talked about things like marriage, that includes an implicit Reference to homosexuality. A, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that sexual morality, the word porneia, from which we get the word pornography, is this junk drawer term. And under that are all the different subcategories that you might put bestiality, homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, premarital sex, adultery, all of those things fit under that general category. So it's kind of like being told, well, don't park your car there. And you think, well, he didn't say don't park your Prius there, all right? Despite what I may think, a Prius is actually a car, all right? Well, likewise, homosexuality is a form of sexual morality. So every time Jesus or anyone else in the Bible talks about the latter, that is sexual morality, he's also implying the former, which is homosexuality. Or you'll maybe hear that this particular sin is only talked about one or two times in the Bible. But the number of times that God says something doesn't increase its authority. So again, it's irrelevant. And again, it's also false. Not even to mention the numerous Old Testament passages on the topic. We see two different Greek terms here in 1 Corinthians. One of those terms is again going to be condemned in 1 Timothy. Then if you read Romans 1, which we preached on a few years ago, Paul judges homosexuality as this graphic depiction of idolatry. 
And again, there's dozens of other passages about sexual morality or marriage that would also imply a prohibition of homosexuality. On and on we could go with all kinds of these cultural arguments that are being pushed not only in in culture, because culture has long since capitulated on this issue, but even in churches for why we should jettison millennia of thinking on homosexuality. Each and every one of those has good answers, by the way. And I mention all of this for two reasons. First is just to simply say, if you're confused, if you're concerned, if you have questions about what the Bible actually says about any sort of sexual sin, including homosexuality or transgenderism, if you have questions about what, uh, whether what the Bible says is actually authoritative or relevant or good, let me encourage you, check out. We have a plethora of resources on the topic or just come and chat with us. We'd love to help you walk through it especially if you happen to struggle with these or any of the other sins that are listed here. This passage is not about why you, because of your sin, are prohibited from entering the kingdom because of those sins. The actual point of the passage is rather that God has provided the means for your inheritance and forgiveness from those sins, as we'll see in verse 11. The second reason I mentioned these two sins, homosexuality and transgenderism in particular, it's because they're actually going to be this powerful illustration of the principle that we'll see in verse 11. In regards to to both transgenderism and homosexuality, the cultural conversation tends to go something like this, be who you are. That's the language of culture, be who you are. You struggle with this, just simply identify with that struggle. You're gay? You're lesbian, you're queer, you're transgender, so be you. That's what our culture says. What's interesting and I think ironic is how close that actually is to the truth. As we'll see, the point of this, act, uh, this passage is actually fairly similar. Become who you already are. That's the point that Paul's making here. Become who you already are, but here's the key difference and you have to understand this difference because it's a subtle difference but it makes all the difference in the world. In today's culture, your identity comes from within. Your your feelings, your truth, your opinion. Whereas as we'll see in verse 11, your truest, your deepest, your realest self, your truest, your deepest, your realest identity comes not from within but from without from above, we'll see that in verse 11, which says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A few weeks back at our uh, semi-annual picnic that we have here at the church, a guy came up to me after church and he introduced himself uh, and then he said, I I actually think you know my wife uh, from uh, college. So I turned around and uh, there was this girl who had lived across the hall from me in a co-ed dorm at A&M my, uh, my first year. And I hadn't seen her since. That was like 24 years ago. So it was a bit of a shock. And there was this awkward moment. Why was it awkward? Well, because anyone who knew me in college would probably use more than half the catalog of vices mentioned above to describe me. I won't tell you which ones. But it was definitely most of them. But now I'm pastoring a church and she's a visitor. So it kind of felt awkward, like I needed to defend myself. So I blurted out something like, uh, I got saved right after college. <laughs> that was my intro line, right? Didn't see someone for 24 years and that's the best I could come up with. 
But uh, thankfully, she actually replied, that's okay, me too. And uh, so she got it. And that means everything. When I, got, when I say I got saved after college, what am I saying in that moment? I'm saying I'm not that guy anymore. As Paul will write in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's the point of 1 Corinthians 6 as well. His point isn't that drunkards or adulterers or homosexuals can't be saved. In fact, those are exactly the kinds of people who are saved. But when they're saved, they're changed. Notice what Paul says, such were some of you. Now his point in saying some isn't that only some were unrighteous. Rather, his point is that only some struggles with these particular examples of unrighteousness. All are sinners, but only some are guilty of adultery, for example. But notice the freedom of this passage, that this passage isn't primarily, isn't ultimately about how the unrighteous are prohibited from the kingdom, although that's true, but the point of the passage is rather how God justifies the unrighteous so that they may enter the kingdom. The passage is about how the the kingdom is populated by those who were once adulterers, by those who once practiced homosexuality, by those who were greedy and idolaters and on and on we could go. But that's not who they are anymore. That doesn't mean the sin is completely conquered. This doesn't mean that those who were once defined by greed are never again greedy but it does mean that their fundamental relationship to that sin has changed, that their identity has changed. And Paul uses three different images to describe that change. The first one is washing, which isn't so much about baptism as it is about what baptism symbolizes. Baptism is this outward sign of an uh, inward, internal, invisible change. And uh, and that inward, internal, invisible change uh, is called being born again or being regenerated. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we don't baptize infants. We're not paedo-baptists. Because, it, because what paedo-baptism does is it divides uh, the outward sign from the inward spirituality. If you don't know what that means, we actually wrote a booklet on baptism that's on our website, uh, just posted it a, a couple of months ago, but that's washing, the idea of regeneration. The second Uh, aspect or nuance of change that he mentions is sanctification and then finally justification. We're going to talk about those two actually in reverse uh, order here. Justification first. So in theological equipping today, those who uh, attended, uh, they know that uh, we're talking about the Reformation. We've just now gotten to the Reformation after months and months talking about the early church and the, uh, the medieval church. And so we talked about today, the beginning of the Reformation with Martin Luther and of all the blessings of the Reformation, and there's a number of them. One of the uh, top three uh, by far is the theological clarification around the idea of justification. Because when it comes to Roman Catholic versus Protestant views on justification, there are at least two main crucial differences. First, in Protestantism, we have this centrality of this doctrine that we call justification by faith. Now, that isn't the case in Catholicism. Catholics, as we talked about, hold that justification is by grace. It's actually by grace alone, but it's not through faith alone, all right? That grace comes through various works, such as the sacraments, works of penance, indulgences, whatever it might be. 
So Catholic justification is by grace alone, but it's not through faith alone. But in the Reformation, there began to emerge this view of justification, not just by grace alone, but also through faith alone. And amen to that. And related to this, there's this second uh, difference between uh, Roman Catholic and uh, Protestant views on justification in that uh, uh, Catholic justification is progressive. You become more or less justified depending on the things that you do or don't do. It's kind of like becoming richer or poorer, right? The more Tesla stock that you purchase, right, the richer you become. The more Elon Musk goes on SNL, the more your stock drops, right? That's kind of the idea there. That's justification in Catholicism. You sin, so you lose some justification points, which means you do need to do works of penance to be re-justified, or you just go to pur- uh, purgatory and you burn it all off, right? So justification in Catholicism is kind of like caloric intake. You, you consume a bit extra over the weekend, so you just need to work a little harder in the gym to work it off. But the reformers hear that, and they say, that's crazy, and they reject that. They say justification isn't something that's progressive and ongoing. It doesn't go up and down. It doesn't ebb and flow. That justification is instead immediate and instantaneous. Why? Because justification isn't based on our works or our merit, but rather Christ's. And justification isn't something that's uh, infused within us or imparted to us. It's rather something that's imputed or credited or reckoned to us. And that's important because it means that we don't become more or less justified. Why not? Because our justification isn't rooted in ourselves, in our works, in our goodness, in our merit. Our justification is rooted in Christ. And he doesn't become more or less just. But what about sanctification? Well, typically when Protestants talk about sanctification, we stress that unlike justification, it actually is progressive. We actually become more sanctified as we're conformed to the image of Christ. And that's absolutely true. That's a very important theological point, but that isn't the meaning of sanctification here in this particular passage. Instead, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about what's called positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. At the moment that you are united to Christ by faith, uh, by grace through faith, you are immediately sanctified in a sense. You're set apart. That's what sanctification means, to be set apart. You're set apart in a sense. Your position has changed. That's positional sanctification. And that's what Paul is talking about here. His point is simply to say that those who inherit the kingdom are those who have been washed, those who have been sanctified, those who have been justified. In other words, the gospel isn't just the good news that you have been forgiven, although yes and amen, that's good news, but also that you've been transformed for the sake of the king and his kingdom. What does this mean? Does this mean that we no longer sin? Not at all. We talked about this, uh, in fact, this morning. As Martin Luther said, we are semper justus et peccator. We are simultaneously righteous and sinners. We're sinners and saints right now. But our deepest identity is not in our relationship to our residual sin. But rather our deepest identity is to our unchanging relationship to Christ. And that's what Paul is stressing here. You're a new man. So why would you live as if you're not? Or to call back to the opening illustration, you're an adult. Are you carrying around a blankie? Are you sucking on a pacifier? Are you pushing little baby dolls in a stroller? Are you sleeping in a crib? 
Or to use another illustration, you're the heir to this great fortune. Why are you arguing over some scraps of meat thrown in a dumpster? There's something unnatural about that image. Just as as there is something unnatural about the Christian whose relationship to sin doesn't seem to be altered at all by conversion. You've already been changed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And if you've been changed, then your allegiances have changed. And thus your perspective has changed. Your perspective on greed, your perspective on petty lawsuits, as in the first of this chapter. Your perspective on sexual morality, as we'll see in our text next week. Your perspective on marriage, on divorce, on remarriage, as we'll see in chapter 7. Your perspective on adiaphora issues or personal rights, as you'll see in later chapters, and on and on and on we could go. In a sense, this passage today becomes the fuel for obeying and the filter for reading the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. So as we begin to wrap up, I want to mention two ways to read this text. Both are appropriate, but I think one is primary and the other is secondary. So I want to make sure we get the primary to be the primary and the secondary to be secondary. The first way to read this is, uh, is as a warning, all right? For those who right now call themselves a Christian but are engaging in unrepentant, unconfessed, hidden, habitual sin, this passage might function as a warning that maybe you aren't actually a Christian after all. Maybe it's all facade. Maybe you've embraced the language of Christianity, but you've not actually embraced Christ himself. And if, that, if that's you, would you repent? Would you take Christ even today? You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. If you would simply bow the knee to the King Jesus, you'll be saved. It would be a profound misinterpretation of this text, a profound misreading of this text or any biblical text to simply think that, there, uh, that because you are defined by your sin now that that is how you always have to be. It would also be a profound uh, misunderstanding of the text to think that grace is some sort of license to sin. So theologically, that way of reading the text as a warning is true, but I don't think that that's actually Paul's primary point here. I don't think that's what Paul is primarily meaning here. Instead, what I think he's doing, I think Paul is writing to people he actually assumes are Christians. And his primary point is this, become what you already are. Maybe you're sleeping around. The Corinthians were. Maybe you're having an affair. We saw the Corinthian man in chapter five was. Maybe you're looking at porn. Maybe you're defrauding a neighbor. Maybe you're pursuing divorce for unbiblical reasons. Maybe you're forsaking your family. Maybe you're walking in pride or greed or a plethora of other sins. Rather than reading this merely as a warning, rather than reading this and assuming that you're condemned, I want to instead encourage you to read this passage and remember that you're loved. But also that that love is manifest and you're being washed and sanctified and justified. And I say this because the way to grow in sanctification is not by rolling up your sleeves and simply trying harder to be better. The way to grow in holiness is by realizing you're already holy. Your positional sanctification, what is already accomplished, what is already instantaneous and immediate and complete is what actually drives and fuels your progressive sanctification, the ongoing conformity to the image of Christ. 
So this passage isn't saying be who you've always been. That's what our culture says when it comes to sin. Just simply embrace how you feel. It's not saying be who you've always been. It's also not saying become what you're not. Try harder, be better, roll up your sleeves, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. It's instead saying to become who you already are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I just confess that the only access we have to you is through him and praise you because that access is complete. Your love for us doesn't ebb and flow like our love for you. Your love for us is not grounded in some sort of subjective experience because you don't experience emotion the way that we do. Your love doesn't ebb and flow because you don't ebb and flow. You don't change. You're unchanging in your affections for your people. And so I pray that you would help us to realize that. If there is anyone that is walking in unrepentant, unconfessed, habitual sin today, Lord, I pray that you would convict us and you would press us, Lord, to remember that we're loved, that we've been washed we've been sanctified, that we've been justified for your glory. Pray that you would help us. Conform us to the image of your son. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.